Thank you, Brother Eric. I didn't want to trip over anything up here, so moving all that stuff. I want you to take your Bible today and turn to uh, two passages. First of all, look at Romans 11 and then Matthew 27. We'll spend some time in Matthew 27, but I do want you to look in Romans chapter 11 with me. I've been a Christian for a long time, been walking with God for a long time, learning about Him and His ways. And one of the ways that uh, my life for, I don't know, maybe the last 20 years, I hadn't put a stopwatch on it. I'm not like that really, except for dates uh, with people. I remember those. But uh, the way that I have come to uh, enjoy my life and have peace, I mean peace and not get upset with, with things, is I have made peace with not having to understand everything. Uh, If you do not make peace with that, you you will never have peace. It's okay to ask God why, but if you demand to know why, and you're never going to have peace because there's always going to be questions in your life. And this this little um, attitude... This this perspective did not come by accident. It was cultivated, but it came by learning about the character of God. There's a scripture uh, in my life that uh, God has helped me with. And then the entire lens of this is seen through Bible characters. And I'll quote the verse to you. It's in Psalm 119, verse 68. It's about God. And here's what the Bible says about God. Thou art good. And thou doest good. I want you to stop and think about that. The psalmist, some people believe David wrote Psalm 119. Some people believe Ezra did, but it's the word of God. And the Bible says, thou art good, and thou doest good. Now, whether you can see the good in it or not, that's not the issue. Because the truth is, there are some things in life that are not intrinsically good. In fact, they're very bad. But God always does good. He takes what the devil intended for bad, and He makes it good. Because everything that is good comes to you from the Father of lights above. And everything that happens to you is filtered through the Father's heart. Thou art good, and thou doest good. And I want you to understand... When you settle that, when you settle the goodness of God in your life, you'll be much happier. You won't always have to figure everything out. You'll just know, okay, this is from the hand of God. I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. But God is good. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, said something to this essence. He said, when you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. When you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. I like that. I like that a lot. And this this disposition, this this mentality, this biblical framework has helped me to remove the sting of cynicism, the sting of bitterness, of things that have ordinarily would have shaken me and has given me hope and joy. Now, when you meet someone that 
that has lost their joy, I'll tell you something about them, is their discontent. A discontent man is a, is a man that's not joyful. A person that has lost their joy has something in their life that they're not content with. Because contentment and joy are twins. In fact, you read the book of Philippians, which is the book of joy. And uh, Paul talks there at the end of chapter 4. He said, I have learned uh, to be content. I had to learn that. But that goes right along with joy. You show me a, a happy man, a joyful Christian, and it's not someone that knows why everything happened. It's not someone that everything that good has happened. In fact, when he wrote the book of Philippians, he was in not just in a prison, but in a in a miry jail cell that was pathetic. If, if you've been over to that place in Rome, I think Eric has been over there. Rats and vermin, cold, disease. Now, don't think about a prison that, as bad as it is, what you're thinking about with concrete and bars. They had the bars, but it wasn't anything what you're thinking about. Paul was at a great disadvantage physically and emotionally. But he had great joy because he had learned to learn to be content. Now, there's a time to accept mystery and just say, you know, I, I don't understand this. There's a mystery as far as this disease in my body. There's a mystery about why this has happened or why this hasn't happened. This hasn't fallen my way. There's a time to accept that, but there's also a time to, to revel, R-E-V-E-L, to revel in mystery. Now, if you're staying with me, you say, well, hold on, Rick. How can you revel in mystery if that's something you can't understand? How can you revel in something that you can't understand? Because you only worship that which is greater than you. You will never worship that which is smaller than you. Our, our kids don't make heroes out of people that ride the bench. They put the posters up in their bedrooms of basketball and baseball and football players that have done great exploits. And uh, their idols, for good or bad, are, are people that are worthwhile. And until God is, is worthwhile, until He is greater than you, until you see Him through that lens, you will not have any wonder and then you will not have any worship. In fact, the word worship comes from the root word worthy. We worship him because he is worthy. And when when the awe, A-W-E, when the awe is gone, when the mystery is gone, something bad happens. And part of having awe, part of having wonder about God is, is having mystery. Now stay with me, uh, this is the introduction. Some of you are, are struggling with this right now because there are some things you can't figure out. And you need to make peace with that. But some of you want to know, maybe not the bad things, but you want to learn more about God. You can grow in your knowledge of God, but you will ever be growing in your knowledge of God, even in eternity. You'll never know all there is about God. In fact... I'll show you one aspect this morning 
But when you go to heaven, you'll still be learning about God forever and ever and ever and ever. Because God, listen carefully, this is not heresy, God is a mystery. The Bible talks about the mystery of the incarnation, 1 Timothy 3. Now, there are some things you can discover and you can know about God. That's what it means to be a Christian, John chapter 17 and verse 3. You can know some things about God. But there are some things about God that are unknowable. And that is part of the awe. That is part of the mystery. And that's what causes you, if you will permit it, for him to be worshipped. And that's why it's important for you to claim Psalm 119, verse 68. Thou art good and thou doest good. Lord, you do good. Because when some things come across your horizon that you can't figure out, some disappointments, some unfulfilled expectations... You're going to become a bitter man, a bitter woman. Now, I ask you to turn to Romans 11 first, and this is a really great passage. Notice in verse 33, Romans 11, 33. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Oh, the depth, the depth of the riches. Now, those are both heavy words. Those are deep words. So you have riches, which is plural, which is there's plenty. And then you have depth, which is plenty. So you have a depth of riches. So what is God rich in? What does he have a depth of riches in? Of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now I just want to stop there for a minute. Now you're going to see this in a minute. But this is a mystery of God's wisdom and his knowledge, because he has a depth of riches. And by the way, you want some riches, you want these riches, but you're never going to have them all. You can pursue them. But he's a mystery. How unsearchable are his judgments? What are his judgments? Those are his decrees, his decisions. Rick, how come God, how come God did this? Why did he permit this? I don't know. Because the Bible here says they're unsearchable. And that doesn't mean they don't have a purpose. By the way, if you knew the purpose, it's not going to make you feel better on this side of eternity. You don't have the capacity to appreciate it yet. How unsearchable are his decrees, his judgments, his decisions... How unsearchable are his ways? Past finding out. The ways, the word there, has the idea of a road that you're taking a journey on. This is the way. This is the highway. This is the way you're journeying with God. And it's an unsearchable journey. It's an unsearchable highway. It's past finding out. I've been saved for a long time. Since 1968. Long time. I've been walking with God for a long time, and, and there's a lot of things on this journey that I've been on that I don't understand. It doesn't mean I'm angry about it. I just don't understand them. But his ways, they're past finding out. And then he asks some rhetorical questions. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Of course, the answer is no one. You don't know. Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? 
Or who hath first given to him? That's a very insightful question. God is the one that gives. And it shall be recompensed to him again. You Not only can you out-give God, you can't give God to first and then pay God back. God is the one that is always on the giving end. Now watch this. I love these prepositions here. For of him. That means he's the source. Things come of him. And through him. That means he's, he is our enablement. This morning I, I, I was teaching a class. And, and whatever benefit came to them came, came through the Holy Spirit of God. It, it was through him. And those that have ministered here this morning, the work that has gone through them, because it is through Christ. He is our enabler in the good sense of the word. He helps us. He does the work through us. And to Him, that is our purpose. It is not about us. This church is not about us. It's to Him. We're not doing this for pats on the back. We're not doing this for... For ourselves, but to Him are all things, of Him, through Him, to Him are all things. Now watch this, to whom be glory forever. That's a heavy passage of Scripture. I just kind of briefly commented on some of the words there. Of Him, to Him, through Him are all things. May God be glorified in all things forever. And there's wonder in that verse. There's awe. There, there, and basically, the wonder comes from this, is you cannot fully comprehend God. You cannot fully understand His mind. And you better settle that. But you must not only, you must not only give into it and say, okay, God, that's who you are, you're God. You, you learn, and this is a good part, you learn to revel in it. And that's a good thing. Let me, let me give you a line I heard years ago, but it helped me. Worry is assuming God's responsibility. Worry is assuming God's responsibility because if I, if I first of all, if, if I had to work it all out, I would make a mess of it. My daddy used to tell me so often, he would say, son, something bad would happen. He'd say, Rick, everything's going to be okay. That was my daddy's way of saving Romans 8.28. All things work together for good, for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And Daddy would say, everything's going to be all right. I've, I've heard people, even preachers say, I don't like it when people say because everything's not going to be okay. No, no, each ingredient is not good, but everything, everything is going to be okay. And boy, it was such comfort to hear my, my dad, who was older than me and wiser than me, and and I, I would hear him say that with such patience and confidence. And I would say, okay, I, I'm going to borrow his strength and his wisdom and his confidence in the future and in the present. Man, it gave me peace. And then I found myself saying it to my kids. Through their miscarriages and troubles. With their head buried in my chest and weeping. Many times whispering that phrase that my, my earthly father gave to me. Everything's going to be okay. 
Everything's going to be okay. Because your heavenly Father, in a mysterious way, says everything is going to be okay. A.W. Tozer, the great uh, devotional writer, some call him a mystic. And I don't like to use that word. It has an appropriate use, but you have to define it. And when you, you start having to look up definitions, you say, oh, that's what it means. But it confuses people sometimes. But a wonderful writer, I like Tozer. He said this in one of his books, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, I agree with that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about when you think about God? That's the most important thing about you. Because fundamentally, that's going to alter every single thing in your life. Your attitude, your actions, your choices, everything. The kind of person, the kind of man, the woman you are, everything. You know, through these years, I've taught you to to spend time in the Word of God, to walk with Him. Not just because it's a churchy thing to do or somebody told me. to. No, no, no. It, it affects the fabric of your being. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You're not going to wake up in the will of God. The, the way you know the will of God is you, you know the Word of God. And when you know the Word of God and you obey the Word of God, you're doing the will of God. It's not, it's not a confusing thing. Awe, awe and wonder lead us to worship. Boy, it's so simple. I think sometimes we want to make sure that we, we create a worshipful atmosphere and we have worship leaders and we have worship prompts and we have worship songs, and we got to get people to worship. John chapter 4, the Bible says Jesus, is, Jesus says the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Now, I think I'm right on this. And it's not like I want to debate it, but I think I'm right. But only two times in the Bible, God is seeking something. He's seeking lost people. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And He's seeking people to worship Him. This is not complicated. You can worship God in your car. I was talking to Dave this morning about worship and and worshiping on Monday and Tuesday and and what what you think about and what you listen to. May I say this? I say this kindly but very directly. If you haven't worshiping God on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, we're, we're not going to be able to, to do a good job in here of getting you to, to worship. You worship God out of the overflow of your life. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you're walking with God Monday through Saturday, you walk in here and we just sing a song. I say just... We sing a song. It's the delight of your heart because you're already loving God. It is not the task of the pastor and the music director to manipulate you or to motivate you into worship. I was writing an article this week about, uh, about praise in, in, in a church. And I talked about well-meaning music directors. I say well-meaning because I think they're sincere and sometimes you'll hear this statement, some of you that have grown up in church, 
The song leader will lead a song. He'll get to the third verse. He said, now, on this, let's sing like we really mean it. Now, you don't have to, but just pretend. Now, he doesn't say that. Let's sing like we really mean it. Well, according to Isaiah 1 in Mark chapter 7, God says, no, no, I'd prefer not. I'd prefer that you not do anything that you don't mean like you do. You haven't meant anything else up to now. Why don't we just have a stop the service and let's repent and, and start. You say, now, preacher, you're being a, too, a little too hard. I, I don't think so. The Bible says we worship with our mouth, but not with our heart. I love this definition of worship by William Temple. It's lengthy, but it's powerful. He says, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is a quickening of conscience by His holiness. Where do you get that at? In the Word of God. When you see how holy He is and how holy you're not. The nourishment of mind with His truth. The purifying of the imagination by His beauty. That's the awe. That's the wonder. Wow, look, look, look what He did. Look at who He is. How did He do that? The opening of the heart to His love. Here's where the transformation comes in. The surrender of will to His purpose. And so, what I like about that definition is is the thoroughness of it, but it it talks about the entire person. You can probably add some more to it, but I'm not smart enough. William Temple wrote that years ago. It's just so powerful. Just so powerful. Now, there's another mystery of God that I want to talk about today, and we'll, we'll finish this up at another time. But it's a mystery of God... When he died for us on the cross. And this mystery is so deep. And so broad. And so wide that when we consider it. You just get a splinter of it. And when I say a splinter, a micro splinter. But it will be the theme of heaven. And it will cause us to wonder for all of eternity. And it's the wonder of Calvary. We've been looking and studying the utterances, the statements of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And we come to the middle one. He said seven things, seven separate statements. And this is the fourth utterance of Jesus from the cross. And, And there's a clarity to it, but there's also a mystery to it. And this is why I set this up with mystery. Because I'm going to fail today, and I'm going to fail in the weeks to come to really talk about this, but but I'm going to give as much clarity as I can. But when I finish, you're going to love the Lord more, but you're going to say, I don't understand that. I see it, but I don't see the whole picture, and that's okay. Because it's God. I want you to look in your Bible in Matthew chapter 27, if you would notice in verse 45. Matthew chapter 27, look at verse 45. This takes us to this place when Jesus was on the cross there. 
Now from the sixth hour, we'll come back to that, the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land under the ninth hour. So the darkness was from the sixth to the ninth hour. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now he was speaking in Aramaic there, which was the common language of the people, of, of commerce. If you went to the bank, if you went to the store, I say the store, the market, that's the language. This was a common language. Most people didn't speak in Hebrew. It was the language of the religious clientele, religious leaders. So he was speaking to the common people here. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, that is, they heard him say, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. They said, this man calleth for Elias or Elijah. And straightway, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, let be, let us see. Now, they did this in a mocking way. You can tell this from the parallel passages in the other Gospels. Let be, let us see whether Elias or Elijah will come to save him. Now, part of the mystery here is the darkness. The darkness the Bible speaks of when Jesus was crucified. Notice in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was a darkness over all the land. This darkness was a supernatural darkness. You know, when Jesus came into the world his, in His birth, His life, His ministry, everything had to do with light. When the, the wise men, the Magi, when they came to, to find Him there in Bethlehem, they followed the light in the sky. They followed the star. And then the angel of the Lord came to the shepherds there in the country in Luke chapter 2. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, the Bible says. The light began to shine. Then when he was born and his parents took him to the temple eight days later to present him to the Lord. And uh, people prophesied. There were two people that prophesied over him. And one of them said in Luke chapter 2 verse 32, "This, This little baby is a light, is a light. To lighten the Gentiles. He's a light to lighten the Gentiles. Then 30 years later when he started his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, it was said of him that the people sat in darkness, but they saw great light. Because he brought light to people that were in great darkness. And then when he preached and he ministered, he said, I am the light of the world. And here is one whose birth, whose childhood, whose ministry was characterized by light. But now at his death, there's darkness. This supernatural phenomenon. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that God intervened with nature particularly with the sun. And some people believe it was a, it was a worldwide 
occurrence when the Bible says that darkness, notice again there in verse 45, darkness was over, look, look at it, all the land, all the land. Now that could mean over all Jerusalem, over all Judea, just in a city, or it could mean in a region, or it could mean the whole world that is over half of the world that had the sunlight. And really all of the world in this sense, but part of it was in darkness because away from the sun. But where God blocked the light, and, and there were the word land there is translated earth in other places in the Bible. But what's interesting is there were some writings in early church history where, where that this happened in other parts of the world. They said that, that there was a time in history when this particular event happened, when all of a sudden there was no light and it was dark at midday. You'll remember in Exodus chapter 10 when God judged Egypt, one of the plagues was darkness. Why it was a judgment. Exodus chapter 10 verse 21, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Now that was a regional darkness. Even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven. And there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw, look at this, look how dark it was. They saw not one another. Have you ever heard the, the expression, black is an Egyptian midnight? Some of you have heard that. This is where it comes from. It was black as midnight. They couldn't see each other. Neither rose any from its place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. This was God's judgment on them. There was a time in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10 and verse 12, when Israel was fighting a battle. Joshua, the general there, uh, they were beating the people back, and all of a sudden the people began to get faint and fatigued. And he said, God, if, if you don't do something, we're going to, to lose this battle. And he prayed that God would make the sun stand still so that they could have more, more daylight to finish the battle. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. He said in the sight of Israel, this is Joshua, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon. Now here's what the Bible says. Now skeptics don't believe this, but I believe the Bible. I believe the miracles in the Bible. You know, when you go visit churches, you need to read their doctrinal statement. All churches do not, they try to explain away miracles. And the Bible says the sun stood still. This is the plain teaching of the Bible. And the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? This was a, a history book that they'd had, and it was well known. A chronicle. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. God stopped the revolving of the earth for a period of time for the sake of God's people. And I think, I'll show you in a moment, that God 
could have stopped the revolving of the planet. But I don't think he did this for when Jesus was on the cross. I, I think he he had a supernatural way of hiding the sun where he, he put his hand. You know, God doesn't have a body. And it wasn't an eclipse. Because in the springtime, it's not over in Israel, that's not the time they have eclipses. And then there was another time when King Hezekiah was dying and he prayed for healing. But he wanted a sign that it was going to happen. He went to the prophet Isaiah in 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 8. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me? I want to know. You, you say God's going to do this, but, but how will I know that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And they had been in Babylon, and they brought back, uh, apparently, sundials. And apparently, this was a, a huge, massive sundial in the courtyard. Because it was obvious for the king to be able to point out and to see and say, You see that sundial? Where they could tell time as the sun moves. Most of you haven't seen these. I haven't seen one in many, many, many years but if you set them up in a proper way in, in, in the old times, I mean, you could mark your time by them. What shall the sign be that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, this sign shalt thou have of the Lord and that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken, that is, heal you. Shall the shadow, he's talking about this sundown, go forward 10 degrees or go back 10 degrees? Hezekiah answered, it is a light thing, a small thing, for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. In other words, reverse. That's what he's saying. Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward, by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Ahaz is apparently the one that brought that thing over from Babylon. This is a second miracle after Joshua that apparently that they had, God had stopped the earth from rotating on its axis. And here's what I think when Jesus died on the cross, it was something like this with the darkness, the mystery of it. During the tribulation period, the skies are going to become dark suddenly. The stars are going to become dark, and then the stars are going to fall as their sockets, as it were. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the, watch this, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. But I want you to notice in that time period, the Bible says the sun shall be darkened. Now, what does that mean? The word darkened means to be obscured. The sun will be obscured. It's almost as if there's a nightlight. We have one in our bathroom, a little small thing. If you don't get your hand too close to it, it won't burn you. But you could cover that up. It, it won't emit any light in terms of escaping from your hand. And the Bible says here that the sun is darkened. The light is darkened. And God, as it were, covered, 
cupped the sun so the earth would not receive light. I don't know what happened when Jesus was hanging there on the cross, but God caused the sun to stop shining and still sustain the world during this time. This is a mystery. This is a mystery. Now, what happened to our Savior there has deeper connotations. And I'm going to tell you, as I began to plow through this, God began to plow upon my heart afresh and anew. Because what happens is there is a transaction between God and His Son. And as much as we can, God allows us to walk into the Holy of Holies. And we, we pretty much stand at the fringes. We cannot go all the way in, but we stand at the fringes. And God gives us tidbits of information. And when you come back, I'm going to go into this and we're going to talk about mystery. And you're going to learn some things. You're going to be reminded. Some of you know these things. Hopefully you'll learn some things. You're going to learn some things about the mystery of what Jesus endured and what happened between the Father and the Son when it got dark on the cross. These, these are precious words. These are life-giving words. They, they will transform your life. But I want to ask you a question right now. There's someone here that two things. That you have lost the mystery of God in your life. He's just become ho-hum. Just church is just something you do. You kind of check it off your list. God is not big to you. You don't go out and look at the part of the problem living in the city. You, you don't have the, you have the light pollution and, you know, we just look around and we've got so much in our way, we can't see creation much, but you can't see what God has made and how big God is. I want to say this, and I don't mean to be a legalist. I'm not trying to be a legalist when I say this. Please understand my heart when I say this. But sometimes we'll say, man, I went to that restroom. restroom. <laughs> that, that'd be awesome. We go to a restaurant, we say ice cream. We go to a restaurant, we get some ice cream. We say, boy, that, that ice cream was awesome. Now, I mean this sincerely, and I don't mean to be a legalist, but no, it wasn't. Now, I know how people mean it. I know what it means. But if you look up the definition for awe, no, it was delicious, and it was good, and I liked it, and I want some more. It was really good. It was great. But it really wasn't awesome. I'm not telling you not to say it even. But here's what I am saying. Unless, unless, is that what defines awesome for you? That was an awesome ball game. I bought an awesome dress. The, the only entity... In the universe that is awesome is God. He is awesome. Because he inspires awe in my heart. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, he wants to save you.
you to bow your heads with me if you would. Every head bowed and every eye closed. He wants to bring awe into your life.